Well, good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24 is going to be our text for this morning. I want to thank you uh, for having me. It's my joy to be with you this morning. I am so grateful for this church and your investment in the community of Huntington and Carroll County um, to exalt Christ high and lift it up. Uh, as a beacon of hope and light uh, for the surrounding community. And I just want to affirm you in your work and support of the student work um, in missions. And uh, you have a fantastic pastoral staff. Thank you for doing all that you're doing uh, for this community. It was my honor to bring the word for the main sessions of our Disciple Now weekend. Um, and I'll say we pack it in and it's well done. Uh, and we had a great time. We had a great time. And I will say just a personal note of, uh, of Nick and Jacob and Henry and Jane. Um, I am very grateful for your leadership, and I am very grateful for brothers and a sister in Christ uh, that I consider very dear friends and that I love dearly. Um, I read not too long ago a pastor out of the Memphis area that said a quote that I've latched on to because in, I guess, the last couple of years, we've seen how much friends really mean to us, how much uh, we can't do this thing alone, how much we need to rely on other people and depend upon one another. And I'm grateful for friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who are in ministry uh, that can go along with me, that can, that, can, uh, that can strengthen me. But he said this, he said, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And I just want to tell you this morning, you need people in your life. You need, you need accountability. You need a brother and sister in Christ that ask you how your reading is going, how your prayer life is, that will pray for you. Um, I'm grateful for these friends. Now... Luke 24, here's the context. We're going to look at verses 13 through 35. It's a rather lengthy story. It's one of the longest, actually, in the book of Luke. This is a story about two guys. Well, some say it was two guys. Some say it might have been a husband and wife who were walking. They were disciples on the road to a town about seven miles west of Jerusalem, immediately after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ in that week of Passover, that we now look back on as the Passion Week of all of the events leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And they were walking on this road on the same day that Jesus had just risen from the dead, having conversations about what had happened, what they had seen, what it might mean. They're confused about these things. Now, we're trending towards Easter this spring. I love spring. Uh, we had all of our winter in January, and I'm ready to get on with, with spring. But I love spring. I love the time leading up to Easter. And uh, we think about that time leading up to Easter. We're in a season now that sometimes people call Lent. Um, Catholics celebrate this, uh, some traditional um, mainline denominations. It begins on Ash Wednesday, which was this past Wednesday, and it continues through until Easter Sunday. Now, sometimes it's a time of reflection. We would disagree that there's anything gained by giving anything up or by doing this, this kind of thing. We think... It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is sufficient for all of your sins. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. However, there are good times that we should lay aside something in order to meditate more fully on him. And so sometimes people give something up. Sometimes it's chocolate or carbs. And I'll say yesterday I had a blueberry scone from 1822. I'm not giving those up. Uh, it was fantastic. Um, if you're high on their cinnamon rolls, you don't want to give those up. Maybe sometimes people give up. Netflix, or maybe it's uh, whatever they might want to go without for a season to focus more fully on Christ. There's an author that I fo follow that recently, uh, it was this week, he wrote a post. And so people will typically post, for Lent, 
I'm giving up, dot, dot, dot. And he wrote for Lent, I'm giving up, period. And I thought that that was a very clever way to put it. I laughed out loud to myself, you know, when I read it. Um, but I was thinking, man, how many of us feel that way right now? That for this season, I have done all I can do. I, there's nothing left in the tank, and I am done, right? I have lost my hope. I am giving up. These two disciples on the road to Emmaus had endured all they could do, and they had given up, and they had lost hope. So I want you to read along with me. You follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. And those who were with the gather, them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. It was the week of Passover. Jesus had come into town, and he and his disciples were east of Jerusalem. Uh, Emmaus was on the west side of Jerusalem. But east of Jerusalem, as you came into town and as you would come into town and see the temple that was on what was traditionally known as Mount Moriah. Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives was also to the east. High and lifted up, you would have seen this fantastic structure. 
with stones the size of train boxcars, overlaid with gold, huge columns. This particular temple, under Herod's jurisdiction, had been in renovation for 46 years. So much so that when Jesus is coming out of the temple, this is early in the week of the Passover week and the Passion week, his disciples just overcome with, with, with the glory of it, say, look, Jesus, what wonderful buildings are these? And he says, do you see these? I'm going to tell you, not one of these stones is going to be left on top of the other. And then he gives us all of that discourse about these kinds of things. After all of this has happened and Jesus had gone to the cross and he has risen from the dead, these disciples are walking back home and they are defeated. Because they haven't become party yet to the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection, or they have. They just haven't seen it themselves. They've only heard it. And they had lost hope. They said, to the saddest words, we had hope. I want to ask you this this morning. Are you in a place where you've had hope about anything? Have you been in a season where you've lost hope? Where you don't have it anymore. Where you dig down to the foundations of your heart and there's just a struggle to believe and to hope that these things are true. That God is working all things out together for the good for those who love him and are called according to the purpose. There's a struggle to connect that that's really true. You're not alone. The first thing I want to say this morning is this. Everyone loses hope at some point, even believers in Christ. As Jesus is walking up, he says, what is this conversation? Now, we ought to know that the context clues of their conversation are clear enough that they're talking about the events and possibly about him because they act as if it's weird that he doesn't know what's going on. It'd be similar to us. Um, I I could ask this group. um, Our students wouldn't have this memory, but I could ask this group. Do you remember where you were September the 11th, 2001? I remember where I was. I was on the college uh, campus of UT Martin, had just taken a Spanish lab, had an 8 o'clock Tuesday, Thursday Spanish lab. And then had an intro to mass communication class at 9.30. Remember those events unfolding as we were there? In our intro to mass communication class, we were told, the World Trade Center's been attacked. We want you to go up to the broadcast booth and cover all of the news outlets, and you learn about mass communication today. And so we went up and we studied all of the news feeds, the AP Newswire that was coming in. I remember that day. I remember um, after that that uh, my wife and I, we were dating at the time. We went back to her dorm room. We got on our faces in her dorm room. Uh, before the Lord, and just started crying out to God, praying for our country and our nation. You fast forward to now, if anyone were to walk in and you were talking about the Ukraine and Russia issue that's going on, and someone said, what's going on? If they were to ask you on September 11th, what's going on? What's everybody up in arms about? Or today, what's going on in, with Russia and Ukraine? I'm not really sure. We would look at them as if, where have you been? We can't turn on the television, the radio without hearing these things or open your phone without seeing the headlines. Where have you been? They had the same feeling towards Jesus who was not asking for information but was asking to draw out of them, which is so much of the reason that that God's word, when we read it, it reads us. It's to draw things out of us. We lose hope when we've placed it in the wrong thing. Man, I tell you, it 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 is easy to place hope in the wrong thing. It's easy to place hope In politics, it's easy to place hope in our education, in our personal performance, in other people, in key relationships that we have, that we trust in them, we trust what they say, we would like their advice, maybe more than going to God's word and spending time before him in prayer. It's easy to misplace our hope. 
But we lose hope when we place it in the wrong thing. We also lose hope when we placed it in the wrong Christ. When we placed it in the wrong Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? When they respond to Jesus, it says this. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, everything hinges on what they understand it to mean to redeem Israel. What they were looking for was a political kingdom, a political ruler to come, to be on their side, to reunify Israel, to re, uh, resurrect the temple and get it out of the hands of the Romans or even people like Herod who were sympathetic with the Romans but were really Jews, to get it back under this conservative uh, ideal of being a Jewish people. And they wanted that. They wanted Jesus to lead them into that. That's why Peter misunderstood and he drew his sword to cut off the ear of the person because they didn't understand what Jesus was doing. We lose hope when we place it in the wrong Christ or in the wrong thing. We always want glory without suffering. What Jesus told them is it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory. But we always want it the other way around. We always want glory before suffering or without suffering altogether, don't we? We want dessert without veggies. My children would amen that if they were here. Amen to that. We want a check without work. We want a trophy without a race and that without training. We want a degree without late night papers and finals week. We want glory without suffering. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that suffering always precedes glory. The second thing, loss of hope is due in some part to lack of faith. Loss of hope in some part is due to lack of faith. Look at their response. They say a lot of on-point things. And I would imagine, I would love to see, obviously we can't be there, I would love to have seen Jesus' face as they're going through these things, as they're clicking these things off. Um, I've been helping my, uh, my son recently work through math, you know, doing homework. I thought, I didn't know what parenthood was going to be like in school, but I just thought, like, you know, Teachers are going to teach them, we're going to bring them home, they're going to do some homework, and we're going to move on with our evening. Did not realize I was going to have to relearn everything that I had ever known uh, and help them with their homework. But math is one of those things where, where he's getting like two or three steps away, where the real problem is not presented. And so you have to show your work, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. And it's tough for me not to just take the paper, right, and be like, mm, do it for you. Here you go, here you go. It's right. It's right. Tell the teacher, it's right. I can guarantee it. You know, I show my work. But it's, it's tough for him to discover, for me to wait back and wait for him to discover and see these things. Yeah, okay, that's right. You do that, then you do this. You carry the one, you can't add it to it. You got to put it in the tenth place. You know, all of these kinds of things. When the disciples are going through all the things that are true about Jesus, it's as if he's watching saying, yeah, yeah. And what's the conclusion that you've drawn? Look at what they say. He was a prophet, mighty indeed, and and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, which, by the way, I want to stop right there and say that is some brutal honesty, that even from early on, we see that, that uh, a lot of the Jews did not blame the Romans for the crucifixion only. They blamed their own people who were the ones who gave him up, which is what Jesus was, said was going to happen three times leading up to Jerusalem. He says, we're going to go in there, and the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're going to deliver me over and have me put to death. Now, how did that work? 
well, the Jews couldn't put anyone to death without a charge. Well, the Romans liked putting people to death, but he just hadn't violated any of their laws. So they came together perfectly that a violation of the Jewish law, which he made himself out to be God, which they didn't think was true, but was in fact true. They handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. But they're honest here in saying our chief priests were the ones who delivered him up. How our chief priests delivered him up, condemned him to death, and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You can imagine Jesus saying, yeah, yeah. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things were happened, had happened. He said, on the third day, I will rise again. You rebuild, the, you destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up again. Yeah, yeah. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And then when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who they said was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And you're thinking at that point, Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, like all the puzzle pieces are lining up. Where's the disconnect? And so many times the disconnect is because our hopes have been dashed, we don't think that our hope could actually be true. We're hamstrung. And they had come all this way and they'd seen all these things. They'd walked with Jesus, ministered alongside him, seen him teach, listened to him teach, seen him heal. And they got to that point and they just didn't believe. They just didn't believe. They believed that he was still dead. They didn't believe he was alive. Loss of hope in due, is due in some part to a lack of faith. They knew the scriptures, didn't truly believe them. They had witnesses that morning who confirmed he was missing and told him he was alive by the angels. Still didn't believe. And number three is this. Jesus recalibrates our understanding of him to restore our hope. He recalibrates our understanding of him to restore hope. You ever been um, talking to Dylan a minute ago? Dylan's a Chicago Cubs fan. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Now we love brothers in Christ, but not in El Central, right? And so uh, my family used to take vacations. We'd go up to St. Louis. Uh, if you've ever been to St. Louis, you've been up in the arch, beautiful uh, marvel of engineering and architecture. If, you've ever, if, you, if you're claustrophobic, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but if, you, if you're not, it's beautiful. Well, you get inside this tiny little elevator pod type of thing. Because it's the shape that it is, if you, if you go up and you just keep going up, by the time you get up there, you're going to be horizontal instead of vertical. And so there's a delicate system in which you go up and they, they tell you all this. They say, well, every few minutes you're going to feel like you're falling or that something's kind of coming back into, into place. But that's the way that it's engineered because you have to go up a little bit. You'll start to tilt and then it'll click back over. You go up for a little while and it'll click back over. You go up for a little while, it'll click back over. You know, walking with Christ is just like that. There are ways that we can get far off track if Jesus doesn't recalibrate our understanding of the gospel and what his word is and says and the hope that we have in him. We can quickly get upside down and lose hope. But Jesus here recalibrates his disciples in a very gentle way, even though he calls them foolish and slow of heart, he gives us his word. Three ways he recalibrates our understanding of him. Number one is this. He gives us his word. At the point at which he says they were slow of heart, could he not have revealed himself and said, ta-da, hey guys, it's me. It's me. 
Take the blinders off of your eyes. I am alive. I, 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 I know that I was gone from the tomb this morning. Those are my boys, the angels back that told the women that I was alive. I sent them on that. But couldn't he have said, ta-da, it's me? But he didn't. And what does it say? Instead, he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, major prophets, minor prophets, he walks through and interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He goes back to Genesis. He goes back to Exodus. He goes back to Leviticus. He goes to all of these places and says, this is about the Christ. This is about the Christ. This is about the Christ. Why does he use the word instead of his physical presence, ta-da, in order to regain their faith? Because that's always the way that it works. Faith comes from hearing, not from seeing. And hearing by the word of Christ. It says in Romans 10, 17. He does this also <clears throat> because he's setting a pattern in place for his followers to go to the word and not to experience. There's nobody else that could, that could recreate this experience of Jesus being with them, walking with them on the road. But you have in your hand right now a copy of Moses and the prophets. I mean, you can go back and read and you can see Jesus on every page. As the Holy Spirit has been given to us, that's the second thing. He gives us his word. The second thing is he gives us his spirit. I love that it's key to note here that the coming alongside them for the conversation in verse 15. It says that he came alongside them. Did you know that when he said he was going to leave the Holy Spirit, he was going to leave the Holy Spirit as a paraclete or one who is called alongside as the comforter. So that when he ascended and he left the Holy Spirit with you, what we believe is when you trust in Christ that you are you are filled, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And as you read the word, it's like uh, my, my kids asked me recently about a decoder ring. They were like, what's a decoder ring? I was like, y'all don't know what a decoder ring is? Then I was like, I guess not. That was a long time ago and we don't read cereal boxes anymore. They were asking about a decoder ring and I was trying to explain it to them. That there would be codes and things written on, on things that you would get and maybe on a cereal box, but you needed something, a magnifying glass or something, that would break the code or that would filter out all the color behind it so that you could see the words on relief. So the spirit within us, as we read, lifts the pages up to where we see these things in 3D. We see Jesus here. We see hope here. We see life here. We see God's purpose and his mercy and his grace in our life. He gives us the spirit. John 16, 14 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Praise God, he has given us his spirit, whereby we're able to understand his word. But then the third thing that he gives us is he gives us one another. He gives us one another. There is a tremendous value in the regular gathering of the saints. I look out and I don't know who's members here, who's not, who's visiting. Um, I want to encourage you, if you don't already have a church home and a regular gathering that you're a part of, of the saints, that it would be here. The gospel is preached here. The word is, is lifted high. It is explained. It is taught. Christ is magnified. God is satis found satisfaction in, and his mission is carried out. And I would encourage you to make this your weekly place of gathering with the saints. There is value in hearing the word preached together. 
sitting under the authority of God and receiving what He has for us. It's a good picture for us, even as pastors, to sit under the preaching of the teaching of someone else. Why? Because it's not the man of God that comes with his own words. He breaks open the word and he teaches and explains God's word. It is God who is sovereign over his word. And it's good for us to listen to his word together. There's value in having the ordinances together like the Lord's Supper. It says that when they were at table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. This is also the same way that he blessed it. He took it, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to the 5,000 at the feeding of the 5,000. It's the same way when they were at the, uh, the Passover meal, uh, the Last Supper, which now has become our Lord's Supper. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And here, you would assume that if it's one of their, their homes, then they would have been the one to take it, break it, and give it. Instead, Jesus did. And it says their eyes were open. Boom. Light comes in. They recognize him in the breaking, in that pattern of blessing and giving it to them. And it's just a beautiful picture. Immediately he vanished from their sight and they ran back. Let me tell you this. We know our hope is restored when we understand Jesus is truly alive. Your sins have been dealt with on the cross once and for all. He is resurrected never to die again. One day we will be in heaven with him never to be separated from him again. The way that they walked to Emmaus was completely opposite of the way that they ran back to Jerusalem. Walking long, sad faces, had hope. They encountered Jesus, broke bread with him, which I love because this is like the quintessential preaching and then going to eat together. Like Jesus preached a sermon and then they went and had a meal together. So when you do that every Sunday, that is godly and right. And you should do that all the time. Uh, but he's breaking bread with them. They receive it. They go back to Jerusalem with a hope that they had rediscovered. And for us, it is good for us every Sunday to come and hear once again, the gospel is true, it is important, and I will orient my life around it. And we start to empty our tank by Saturday. And Sunday morning we come back in here and we, pre we, hear, we hear a message preached. Once again, we sing together. We hear the voices of our brothers and sisters in Christ encouraging us in song. Once again, the gospel is true. It is important, and I will reorient my life around it. Once again, the gospel is true. It is important. I will reorient my life around it. And on and on and on. He's given us one another to meet together. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. My prayer is if you came in here this morning with hope that was hanging on by a thread, that just in opening the scriptures and seeing Jesus is true, he's alive, he has dealt with all your sins, and being reminded of that all over again is enough to renew your hope as you walk out these doors. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is powerful, and that you are always faithful to accomplish the purpose for which you send it. And Father, this morning as we have broke open the scriptures in Luke 24, I pray that we've seen ourselves there, standing still, looking sad, having hoped with that sudden stop at the end. Father, I pray that we would even see ourselves as a mixture of belief and unbelief. That yes, we believe, but oh God, help our unbelief. Help us to be full of faith. Help us to be faithful 
Help us to endure. But God, when we get in a place of hopelessness, I pray that we wouldn't look too far inside, but that we would look up. We would look to Christ. We would look to the empty cross and the empty grave. We would look to where it says that he is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of us. And one day he is returning soon for us. But in the meantime, we are called to believe that the gospel is true. It is important. And we will reorient our lives around it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.